morning, church. If you would take a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 2 this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. I just want to reiterate a welcome to our scout troop that's here today. We're so thankful uh, for each of you and our leaders and our scouts here. Welcome. Uh, some of you are familiar faces here to Dawson. Many of you guys are familiar faces here to Dawson. And we're just so, so thankful. All of our family members that are here, of our baptisms this morning, I just want to, just again, as Kristen has already welcomed you, I, I want to welcome you and so thankful that you're here this morning for a special day in the life of our church. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, talk about one of the chief complaints that comes to Jesus about the company that he kept. Uh, one of the chief criticisms of our Savior is that he was just too open to be friends with just anyone, especially anyone that the religious leaders of the day would seem to be unfit to be a friend of a, of a rabbi, of, of someone who was a follower of God. They had a tiered system by which there were those that uh, were clean and those who were unclean, and Jesus seems to have no patience with any of those kinds of, of lines of demarcation. He is a person who was a friend of sinners, but not just any friend of sinners. He was a sinless friend of sinners. This is one of the wonderful truths of Scripture. You've heard that saying before. You can know a person by the company that he keeps. You can know a person by the company that he keeps. If you're a parent here, you know this phrase because it's something that you worry about. It's something you think about. It's something that you pray about. Who will be the friends of your son, of your daughter, of your children? It, it is something of great consternation for any parent or any grandparent because we know friends influence us. They influence us for good. At times they influence us in ways that, that aren't good. And so we understand the power of friends to influence us. But here we have the sinless Savior who is a friend to sinners, and it shows us a little bit about his mission. It shows us a little bit of who Jesus was, that he is a person who befriends those who were called in that day sinners. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, it highlights this wonderful truth. And I want you to read in your copy of God's Word along with me this morning so that you can ponder Jesus, a friend of sinners. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose. Levi, son of Alphaeus, rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Who is Jesus? This is the preeminent question that is answered through these early chapters of Mark's gospel. That Jesus is a friend of sinners, a sinless friend of sinners. This is one of the astounding qualities of 
our Savior. All throughout the Gospels, we see him pushing to the margins of those who were outcasts, pushing to the margins of those who would have been seen ritually and and, and, in the temple system as those who were unclean. He befriended them. He called them to follow him. Now, it's an emergence of a pattern that you see here in Mark chapter 2. Jesus is not, he is not a footloose, wandering teacher that is aimlessly going from town to town without a compass, without a map, but rather there's a providential pattern to Jesus. He heals, he teaches, he begins to call individuals to to leave their life and to leave their profession and to ultimately first and foremost become a disciple of Christ. So he's calling this cadre of apprentices to come and follow him. In Mark chapter 1 verses 16 through 20 he's given that call to four, four fishermen, two of which leave their nets to follow Jesus, two of which leave their father, their associates, and follow him. And now Jesus is extending his call. He's extending his call to this person by the name of Levi of Alphaeus. Two questions that help us probe this passage. Two questions that help us be able to flesh out how Jesus is a sinless friend of sinners. And they're simple questions. One is who and The other is what? Who and what? Who does Jesus call in this passage? Uh, Well, it seems simple, doesn't it? Verse 14, Mark chapter 2, Jesus calls Levi's son of Alphaeus. What's difficult about this? Well, it is helpful for us to probe this because we have four lists of disciples in the Gospels and also finally in the book of Acts. So we have four lists. Mark chapter 3 is one of them, Matthew 10 is one of them, Luke 6 is one of them, and Acts chapter 1. Out of all the list, guess who doesn't make it? In Acts chapter 1, who's not on the list? Luke chapter 6, who's not on the list? In Matthew chapter 10, who's not on the list? Well, you will not find Levi, son of Alphaeus, on any of the lists of those original disciples. So what is going on here? Is this someone who is not a part of those original disciples? Well, it's important for you to understand who this person is. Now, you know this as you're walking through the Bible. You notice that Peter is probably the most uh, pressing example of this. Peter is known by Simon at times. He's known by Cephas at times. And we know that Simon and Cephas is Peter. Well, here we have another example of this, where Levi, son of Alphaeus, is just another name for the person that we know to be Matthew. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, is the parallel account of what we're reading about in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 here. And guess what? That is Matthew. So Levi, son of Alphaeus, is Matthew, the great evangelist. Matthew, the writer of the gospel account here. Same person, different names throughout the gospel. Simon, Cephas, or Peter. Levi, son of Alphaeus, is Matthew. That's a who question. There's a what question. What, what did Jesus call him from? What was his profession? Well, he's a tax collector. Now, we have some images of tax collectors that are far from the image of that first century Palestinian world where Rome controls Palestine. And in that Jewish world, the, the most uh, disregarded person, the person who uh, the Jewish people held with greatest contempt would be a tax collector because of this. The Romans enforced this cruel tax system, and they had to enforce it with their own people. So Jewish people, 
living in Palestine, were uh, assigned to these first century toll booths. And so at these great intersections of commerce, you would have a person like uh, Levi, son of Alphaeus, who was having to enact taxes upon his very people. So to do that, they were known to extort their own people. They were known for their dishonest practices. They were known for making a living off of ratcheting up taxes so that they could pay their Roman overseers and ultimately profit themselves. So a tax collector was someone who did not have a home with his own people because of his profession. But more than that, the Romans, he was too Jewish for the Romans. He was too corrupt for his own people. So here is a person who has a profession, but he does not have a people. He's disowned. He's marginalized. He's disqualified to be a judge in that first century world. He couldn't be a witness in a court in that first century world. He was expelled from the synagogue. So here is a person, because of his profession, that has not familial connections, has not friends, ultimately has a barrier to worship in the synagogue. This is a person that has a profession, but he's lost his people. Frankly, he's lost his soul. Jesus comes to Levi, son of Alphaeus, and he says two words, follow me. Follow me, you. Follow me. Now, the scribes of the Pharisees here, they they see, the next picture they see is Jesus going to this man's house. Now, every self-respecting rabbi knew that you were breaking the purity clothes of that first century world. You'd be ritually unclean to go to a person's house, especially especially a tax collector, that'd be like going to a Gentile's house. He's reclining. It's a a posture of intimacy. It's what you did at a feast or a festival. His head is closest to the table. He is intimate with these people. So they begin to whisper, who are all of these people that Jesus is friends with? They're tax collectors. They're sinners. They ask the disciples, Jesus overhears this, and he says, those who are well have no need for a physician. Those who need a physician, there are those who are sick. I come not to call the righteous, but I call sinners. Jesus, the sinless friend of sinners. We ask a who question, we ask a what question to ultimately help us probe two principles in this passage here about Jesus' call upon your life and about Jesus' call upon my life. The first principle is the scandal of Jesus' call. You have to see this in this passage. I mean, it's, it's apparent, isn't it, that there is a scandal to Jesus' call in this passage, that the call of Jesus goes out to a person like Levi, son of Alphaeus, is a reminder that one's profession is not an obstacle to the call of Jesus. That one's spotty practices and social status is not an obstacle to the call of Jesus. That no matter what you've said, no matter what you've done, no matter what you thought, this is not a barrier that the grace of God cannot penetrate. This is the power of Jesus' call upon Levi, son of Alphaeus. The the Pharisees and the scribes in this day, they're certain who Jesus should not be a friend to. 
They are certain who Jesus should spend his time with, and none of them would have thought that Jesus' time should have been spent with this one right here, this tax collector. And Jesus is saying to all who would hear then and still have ears to hear today that no one's past, no one's position, no one's profession is off limits to the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I love this about Jesus. You read the Gospels, and the call to follow Jesus is not just for those who are born into the right family, who have the right religious credentials or the right name or pedigree or position. He comes for all. And it's one of the things that always gets him into trouble. You go to John chapter 4, and there's Jesus having to be questioned by his own disciples. Do you know who you're talking to in the middle of the day? That is a Samaritan woman. You can't do that, Jesus. Luke chapter 19, there's a wee little man who climbs up in a tree because the Lord he wants to see, his name is Zacchaeus. He calls him down from the tree, wants to go back to his house. You know what Zacchaeus was? Again, that profession of all professions, he was a tax collector. Out of all the stories, the capstone story, when you're walking through the Gospels that moves you, that communicates with this passage is that woman who is called in the very act of adultery in John chapter 8 and is cast down before the religious leaders of the day. They take up their stones to one by one cast them upon her. And Jesus, in the midst of the scandal, in the midst of her humiliation, calls out. Which one of you religious leaders have not sinned. How about you cast the first stone? One by one. From the oldest to the youngest. They drop their stones because Jesus' words penetrate the very depth of their heart. Jesus embraces this woman, looks her in the eyes, and says, where are all of your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Go And sin no more. Isn't it one of the ironies of the Gospels? One of the ironies of the Gospels is that the religious leaders of the day are pushed away from Jesus. And the sinners have this magnetism to Jesus all throughout the Gospels. Jesus makes sinners feel at home with him. Jesus makes sinners feel comfortable with him. And the pious, the religious, they always feel uncomfortable. Why is that? Have you ever pondered this irony of the gospel? It very well may be that Jesus brings to the surface, covered up, repressed sin, the pride that we want to cast over our sins, but yet he freely forgives those who are broken by their circumstances, broken by life, and so he is a balm to the hurting. He's a testimony to the proud, prostitutes, adulterers, tax collectors, sinners. They respond so readily to the message of the gospel because in their brokenness, they recognize there's nowhere else to turn. I love the way Lewis, pondering in that great book, The Problem of a Pain, he penetrates our hearts by saying prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, though, the self-righteous, They, maybe we, are in that danger. 
few months ago, Christians kind of stormed the social media circuit to be able to give their opinion about one of the most famous public conversions in decades here in America, the, the very rapper Kanye West, the, uh, married to this fashion star, reality TV show. He becomes a believer. And not all, but, but some Christians expressed a degree of skepticism. Uh, they begin to question maybe the motivations of his conversion, or maybe even the authenticity of his conversion. They, they looked to the public persona, and they said, I don't know. They looked to his lyrics and said, I'm not really sure. Is it authentic? What is the answer to this? Well, our answer, shouldn't it be that we pray so? We pray so that, that it is authentic, and, and we hope so, and, and we come alongside of a fellow person who, is, who has uh, publicly professed his faith in Christ, but I have no idea his motivations. You have no idea his motivations, nor can anyone else peer into the heart of anyone. But this I know, this you know, this the Bible reminds us of, is that no person's past, no person's mistakes, no person's profession makes them off limits to the saving grace of God. Centuries ago, there were a number of workers that drug this great marble block into the city square of Florence, Italy. They mined it from one of the famous marble quarries of the day. And it was intended for the great Donatello, the great sculptor, to be able to sculpt a great Old Testament prophet from that great marble block. But he saw it and he began to uh, notice the imperfections and the flaws of this marble block and he refused it and cast it aside. And it lay for weeks, even months, in this cathedral yard. It was a useless block. There was another sculptor, though. Saw that, yes, it was flawed. Saw that, yes, it had imperfections. But while it was disregarded, he began to examine and it rose into his mind what could be this immense beauty that could come from this great marble block. So for two years, he devoted his life to sculpting out of this marble block. For two years, he worked feverishly. So finally, on January the 25th of 1504, the greatest artist of the day assembled uh, some of the other great artists of the day. There was Botticelli that was there, Leonardo da Vinci that was there, and he, uh, the veil that was upon the statue, he dropped it to the floor, and the statue was met with this chorus of applause. Everyone knew that they were looking at a masterpiece then and a masterpiece today because in this moment Michelangelo's David stood before them as a testimony of great artistry and for two years that great sculpture wasn't intimidated by the imperfections and the flaws of that great marble block Michelangelo saw the stone for what it could be, and not solely what it was. Jesus saw the flawed life of Levi, son of Alphaeus. He saw him not just as a tax collector, but he saw him for what he could be, Matthew, the great evangelist, Matthew, a disciple of Jesus. And he still sees 
Men and women today with the consummate artist's eye. He sees past your flaws, past your imperfections. And if any of you would say yes to his call upon your life, you become, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He sees in you what no one else can see in you. He sees past your imperfections. He sees past your profession. He sees past dishonesty. He sees past sin, and he sees what he can sculpt in you that is a beautiful reflection of his grace upon you. This is the scandal of Jesus's call that anyone, at any time, if they would say yes to the saving grace of Jesus, can be a follower of him. This was a scandal then and To many, it is still scandalous today. It's not the whole story, though. The whole story is not only the scandal of Jesus' call, but the cost of Jesus' call. Notice in this passage here that Jesus gives two words to Levi. Notice that he doesn't say, as he's on the seashore teaching, he doesn't say, Levi, son of Alphaeus, do you have any questions about my teaching? Levi, son of Alphaeus, do you you want to dialogue a little bit about what I've been saying, what you've been hearing about me here? Notice that he doesn't say, hey, so what do you think about me? Two words that Jesus gives to this tax collector that forevermore will change his life, and those two words are the two words that he continues to call you and I to respond to. And what are those two words? Follow me. That is, he calls Levi, son of Alphaeus, so he calls you and he calls me to follow him. And it is a total commitment to that call. In the parallel account of Mark chapter 2 that we find in Luke's gospel, the fifth chapter, we read that fleshes out this passage and leaving everything. Levi, son of Alphaeus, left everything, he rose and he followed him. There's something in this passage that reminds us that being a disciple of Jesus is a decisive act. It is a decisive act. This tax collector can't, in one hand, follow Jesus and still swindle citizens. He can't still extort the people as a tax collector and simultaneously follow Jesus, that Jesus is calling for a decisive break. He's calling for a a new beginning, and Jesus is asking Levi not to be a fan of him, but rather a follower of him. This morning at 825, we welcomed the Sanford baseball team. It's been a great day here at Dawson in our services, and we've had wonderful uh, different guests that have been with us, and the entire Sanford baseball team, and many of you know uh, Casey Dunn, a member here at Dawson, who's the head coach, and his wife Marty, and their children, and the whole baseball team was here, and baseball season is starting, and it's the best time of the year. I mean, we got pitchers and catchers that are going to report in just a few days, and so spring training is before us, and many of you are baseball fans, many of you are baseball players, and you know the difference between being a player and being a fan of the game, from being a fan and just a follower. A a fan who goes to a game goes to be entertained, right? A a fan that goes to a game is is a passive onlooker, but it's not a player. A fan that goes to a game goes in their free time. 
It's a part of entertainment for them, but it's separated from real life because there's no risk. There's no risk for being a fan. Being a fan is just simply a hobby. It's just simply a hobby. And notice what Jesus isn't doing. Notice what Jesus isn't asking. He's not asking Levi to make Jesus one of his hobbies. He's not saying, Levi, I want you in your free time to be a follower of me. Levi, I want you to take me up as one of your hobbies here. I want you to have a hobby, and that hobby that you add to the rest of your hobbies is to be a follower of me. No, he's asking for total, devoted uh, uh, discipleship. He wants Levi in this moment to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. And to be a fan is to separate parts of our life from the call of Jesus upon us. We can be a fan of Jesus and it not intersect with our professional life, nor our marriage, nor our parenting, nor our finances. We find time to follow Jesus and it's simply as a hobby. It's in our free time and that is not what Jesus is calling us to. He is calling us to a discipleship that intersects every aspect of our mind, our heart, our will, every aspect of who we are. Just as he says to Levi, follow me, so he says to you and he says to me, follow me. A few months ago, I was reading this profile that the great ESPN journalist by the name of Wright Thompson uh, did on Tiger Wood. It's, it's a few years back. Tiger Wood, at the height of his accomplishments, at the height of his accolade, took upon himself a great interest in being a Navy SEAL. Well, he's a world-renowned golfer. But he has, because of his name, because of his accomplishments, because of his accolades, he has the ability to, to draw upon the seals in a very unique way. So when he wasn't playing, he would have a seal team come and take him through the ropes of being a seal. He would jump out of planes, he learned to shoot, he learned to clear rooms. He got to do all of this in his free time, even so much that he began to wear the Navy seal uniform, much to the consternation of many of the Navy seals that were there with him. what Woods ended up doing was, is while he wore the uniform and he went through the weekend ropes, while he might feel as if he was a Navy SEAL, being a Navy SEAL, we all know, is not a weekend hobby. Tiger Woods was a fan of the SEALs, but being a fan, no, no matter how committed of a fan, doesn't make you a seal. You can wear the uniform, but he was still a fan. And maybe some of us here, maybe some of us here treat our call to follow Jesus as a weekend hobby. We dress the part, we go through the motions, but really, get down to it. We're fans and not followers. Jesus calls Levi to total obedience. He calls Levi to a costly call, and it means in that moment giving him everything. And Jesus still calls, even today, he still calls, and that call still costs. It costs us more than adding Jesus to our hobby list. He wants us to be followers. And not first and foremost fans, 
So I ask you today, fan or follower? Fully devoted to him this morning or making him one of your hobbies among a bunch of other things that you give your life to? Maybe we would repent of the temptation this very moment of making Jesus a a hobby in our life and being a fan of him and ask through the power of the Holy Spirit for his strength and his motivation and his courage to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. There is the scandal of Jesus' call because it goes out to each and every one of us that are in this very sanctuary. And there's the cost of Jesus' call. He's calling today. How have you and how will you respond? Fan or follower? Let us pray. So God, penetrate our hearts. Allow us to hear. Allow us to hear what Levi, son of Alphaeus, heard. Follow me. What parts of our life, God, are we not willing to follow you into? What aspects of our life are we treating our relationship with you as just a a hobby that we add to everything else that we do? What parts of our marriage do we have off limits to following you? What part of our finances do we have off limits to following you? What part of our professional life do we have off limits to following you? What part of our priorities are we not allowing your Holy Spirit to shine upon this very morning? You're still calling, follow me. What a wonderful voice to hear for each and every one of us here that have felt that we have done something or said something or thought something that made us irredeemable, cast far from your grace and your love. Remind us today that no matter how far we've gone astray, that your grace flows to us, the very margins. That your grace, it overflows those tidy religious banks that we so construct. And that you're a God who is still calling us to the margins, calling us to the outcast. May we see that From the eight-year-old that trusts you as Savior, that it is a miracle of God, to the person that has never darkened the doors of a sanctuary, it is a miracle of God that every conversion, every conversion is a miracle. So we thank you for your grace, a grace that still flows today. May we, in light of what you have done for us, respond with total devotion to you. We pray this in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.